Alumni Audio Lab. Welcome to the very first issue of Alumni Audio Lab, the new podcast of the OEAD. The OEAD is the Austrian Agency for International Mobility and Cooperation in Education, Science and Research. My name is Doris Bauer and in this podcast I will talk with alumni of our organization. They have all studied and researched in Austria and are now successful in their fields of work, which cover a broad range of academic disciplines. We want to learn about the personal and professional background and current research, the personal approach to their research interest and their motivation. Our first guest today is Paul Yilja. Welcome to the Alumni Audio Lab. Thank you very much, Doris. It's a pleasure. I understand this is a very <laughs> fast one. Yes. I'm really looking forward and I'm yeah. honored to be the first guest. Me too, me too. Paul, you are from Sierra Leone, from West Africa. Yes, that's right. And you first came to Austria back in 2000 for your master's degree. Ah, yes, in 2001, actually. Ah, okay. I was following a master's program in um, limnology in, at, uh, in Delft, in the Netherlands. And then I got to understand that uh, I could do six months of that course in Austria and Czech Republic. And I opted for that. And uh, that was a good decision, I think, I made at that time. Yeah, right. I think too. Yeah. <laughs> the institute you were at the, in, in Salzburg is part of the Austrian Academy of Sciences, yes, right? Yes, this is the Institute for Limnology. Well, it used to be part of the Austrian Academy of Sciences. I think it's no longer. Ah, okay. It's now part of, um, I don't really know exactly, but it's now with a university in, in, in upper, upper Austria, I think. Oh, okay. I, I, I would have to find out exactly what that important <laughs> is, but I think it's no longer part of the Austrian Academy of Sciences. Yes, and in, in 2005 you started your PhD studies yes, at the Univers yes. University of Technology, that's right? That's true, that's true. Uh, actually, when I said uh, it was a decision I made in, to come here in Austria in 2001, and I never regretted it, because uh, part of that master's program meant I do some courses at uh, the TU. And this is where I met uh, Professor Kreisinger and I remained in touch with him. So when I went back home to teach at the university, I still wanted to pursue a PhD. And uh, I liked the way he handled the course he gave us and I liked also the principles and, and the program itself. So I asked him if we could work together for a PhD and he says, well, let me see if you have a proposal and uh, we see what happens. So I developed a proposal, luckily also with uh, another professor, uh, Maria uh, Lightfred. I met her also during this program, uh, the, the, the master's program, and she supported me to come to Austria to write this proposal in Lund, very mm -hmm. beautiful scenery in Lund. And uh, once that proposal was ready, we drove together with her to Vienna and met Professor, professor Kreisinger. And, uh, Yeah, from there things started moving. So Professor Kreisinger was also interested in that. And then the problem now, of course, was to look for funding. And, uh, well, we, we, by then it was not up here. It used to be the North-South Dialogue uh, Fellowship yes. Program. Yes. And uh, I sent in an application and I waited for a couple of months and it was positive. <laughs> It's very nice and that's why we can sit here yes, today. Yes, exactly, today. exactly. It was about limnology. What is limnology? Yes, uh, well, that's an interesting terminology, right? <laughs> Because it is. <laughs> I, have, I have seen people confuse it with crimin yeah. criminology. Yeah. 
Well, to put it simply, limnology is a study of freshwater systems. So it could be the chemistry, the biology, the physical properties, and, and so on. Also the human interactions with uh, freshwater systems. But that's, that's simply put. Where is your personal interest in interest in limnology when does it start when did it start or how did you come to that because i think i i've never met a child who said yay when i'm big i want to become a limnologist exactly exactly, exactly. <laughs> actually i even even the study of water was never in my mind when i went to university to study my first degree i i i my father worked in the mines yeah and you know probably you know uh, sierra leone is is rich in mineral resources uh, one of those mineral resources is diamond My dad used to work in the diamond industry, so I grew up loving to work in the mines. Yeah. When I finished uh, my secondary school education, I wanted to raise some money to go to university, and I, I decided to work for one of those mines. But it was not my, the, the mines where I grew up, because this was the diamond mines. I went to work in another mining company. Uh, it's called uh, Serra Ruta, and this mining uh, titanium oxide. Yeah, it's very useful metal, uh, probably, you know, for the AI industry, because it's a very light metal. Okay, yeah. And, yeah. you know, once I got in the mines, I got interested. And my first choice when I went to university was to study geology. So I started with geology. And stones and water, it's, it's a big way. <laughs> big way, exactly, exactly, that's it. And But then when I went to third year, I knew that there are some other options. By then the civil war had also started in Sierra Leone and the mines were closing down. And I had to look for a career that uh, could, you know, that I could go into and uh, earn some living and take care of myself. So the mines were not so attractive because these were now the target area. You probably know that even this, the famous movie Blood Diamonds, the, the, the rebels were after the mines. So I had to change midway. So when I went to Honor School, I studied marine science. So this is, this is where the interest to water started. So I started with marine science or oceanography. But the principles in oceanography, whether it's about the, the ecology or whether it's the water chemistry or the physical properties of, of the oceans, the study is similar to limnology. Yeah? And honestly, when I wanted to do a master's degree, I, I decided, okay, well, I do a master's in oceanography also. Yeah. But then it was about opportunity, and I never got an opportunity like a scholarship okay or maybe some funding or maybe, uh, you know, resources from elsewhere to, to do a master's program in, in, in oceanography. But I got one in the Netherlands to do freshwater okay. systems. So I you said, okay. skipped the salt? Exactly. Actually, I joke about it. I tell people that it became so salty for me <laughs> that I have to jump into freshwater. Yeah. And, and honestly, I never regretted it, you know. <laughs> it was a very good decision. It's great. Yeah. You, you said it before, before we started, that you came around quite a lot. You started in Sierra Leone, then yeah. you came to the Netherlands, then yeah. to Austria, then I've read you've been to Kenya yeah. and anywhere else. What are your, let's say, academic life stages and what brought you to Austria at the end? You already yeah. said that it was the scholarship, but what was in between? Yeah, quite interesting because I would say it's a long journey. I used to call my, my master's program a super sandwich uh, master's program. Okay. Yeah? You know, you know, a sandwich usually has uh, uh, a two, top, two, a bottom. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> two layers of bread, top yeah. and bottom, and then some layer of, of meat or, or maybe, um, you know, uh, for cheese vegetarians, or, cheese yeah. or something else. Yeah? yeah. But mine was several layers of bread and several layers of uh, meat or whatever inside. Yeah? More like a club sandwich. Ex exactly, <laughs> really a very big sandwich because when I, um, and it's all about where I come from. 
because when I came to, to the Netherlands, I got this opportunity to come to Austria and Czech Republic for the same master's program. But then I couldn't go back to my home country to do my f master's uh, field research because uh, all participants were required to go back to their home country, yeah. uh, except for those who can't. But in, in, in this time, there was a civil war civil in Sierra Leone. Yeah. And my, my, my research institution there had lost the lab because it was burnt down yeah. uh, from a fire inferno. And then um, I had to look for somewhere else to go. So I had to discuss with the professors, uh, where could I go to do my yeah. master's thesis? And then they made an arrangement for me to go to Uganda. Okay. So this was actually my first time in, in East Africa. So I went to, to Uganda to do the, the master's uh, fieldwork at, at Makrere for three months. And then I didn't come back to Australia. I went to the Netherlands to finish the write-up. Yeah? So that, that is how the master's closed. So, you know, in total, four countries yeah, at the very minimum, apart from those countries we visited for field excursions and so on. And then uh, once the master's was finished, I got interested in this, in this uh, type of study. So my PhD is also another super sandwich. <laughs> <laughs> Because, um, we, we, again, for the same reason, we didn't have good infrastructure for research in Sierra Leone. The war had ended in mm -hmm. 2003. I was starting the PhD now in 2005, but still the resources were, you know, were not, uh, had, had not been uh, rebuilt yet. Yeah. The, the infrastructure was still very poor. So I, I opted, again, to look for opportunities in East Africa. So this time it was Kenya. And again, it was a suggestion of um, uh, this uh, Dr. Maria Lightfred, yeah. who said, well, I have, we have some work we are doing at a university in Kenya. Take a look at it and see if you can model your research work around a similar study area. And I noticed immediately that um, they had been doing quite a lot of work in the, the, the biology of, of this system, a small river system, but nothing on the chemistry, and the flows and, and, and those type of things of, of the river. So I said, okay, maybe I could do some work on that and bring in that input. Okay. So I was actually in Kenya for quite some time uh, for my master's, over uh, one and a half years, collecting field data because I really wanted to study the system for a whole year and even another additional uh, half a year to understand it fully. And then I came back to Kenya um, to, to Austria uh, for a couple of months just to, to finish up and to, to defend my, my thesis. And then the doors opened because my, my, my links with that country and the region as a whole just imp increase. As you know, yes. once you, you increase your expertise in an area, you become uh, known Mark for it. And yeah. uh, mm -hmm. you know, people refer to you and they want uh, you to contribute yeah. from time to time. And yeah, and that was it. And also when I finished, the PhD, that was not the end of the road because no. I, I really thought, uh, well, I will go back home and work at the university. Uh, but then um, my professor uh, said, well, you, you have some really good work here. Let's, let's do some publications. So he created some opportunity for me to do some hours. And uh, yeah, and uh, we published quite a lot of uh, papers from, from that. And then the doors open and again. Again, <laughs> <This is> a, <laughs> more and you more. Know, more and more, yeah. So uh, I got a position at IASA, uh, at the Institute, International Institute for yeah. Applied Systems Analysis for two and a half years. Now I am guest scholar, still guest mm -hmm. scholar, but before then I was a full-time scholar yeah. there. And then while at IASA, another opportunity opened to work for a UN initiative called Sustainable Energy mm -hmm. for All. 
And all of this meant a lot of traveling yeah, uh, yeah. globally, also leading international discussions yeah. uh, around uh, a very key uh, topic now. You probably know about the water energy food nexus yeah. and the links, uh, the importance of this uh, type of thinking for yeah. the Paris Agreement, but also for the, the new sustainable development goals. And uh, yeah, so that's that's how it has been. That's your way that yeah. brought you yeah. here. Yeah. It's a long way. Yeah, it's it a is. long way. <laughs> <laughs> it is. Okay, then let's let's go on. You already started it with your current work. The yeah. the initiative you work is called Sustainable Energy for All. Yeah. And it's part of UNOPS. Is it called UNOPS or UNOPS? Yes. Uh well it is not because you, you know the way UNOPS work, uh UNOPS is the United Nations Office for Project Services. Mm. So they they are the recruiting arm for several United Nations organizations and also non-UN organizations uh, that need their services. So I am recruited by UNOPS to work for Sustainable Energy for All. Okay. Well, Sustainable Energy for All itself used to be a UN initiative okay. uh, because it was founded in 2011 by the Secretary General, the former Secretary General of the United Nations, Ban Ki-moon. Yeah. And um, for a period of, uh, until last year actually, so we are talking about uh, four years, mm -hmm. it's, it was a UN initiative um, more or less working on advocacy to uh, increase the importance of energy within the global uh, development agenda, but also the links with energy and development and the energy and the environment to change the narrative um, the energy narrative yeah. as a development as an, an, as an environmental issue. So, but now it's registered under Austrian law as, a international, as an international non-for-profit organization. Yeah. So it came out from the United Nations, but now it's, it's an, an Austrian organization. An international organization an international registered under Austrian yeah. law. Okay, yeah. that's interesting. Yeah. And when I've read it right in your CV, you first came in touch with the United Nations, although so you said it's, it's not United Nations anymore, mm -hmm. with the UNESCO in, in 2000 when you first came to Austria. Um, UNESCO IHE, you mean? Yeah. yeah but well, IHE is, is an institute. It's, it's, it's a UNESCO institute. Okay. Yeah, but it is, okay. it's, um, you know, the, 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 the structure of United Nations, um, I mean, UNESCO institutes is modeled around um, those institutions that can contribute towards the, the overall objectives or the overall goals of UNESCO, especially when it comes to science mm -hmm. and cultural development. So UNESCO did not have a water institute. And okay. Uh, some kind of arrangement was made between the Dutch government and the, the proprietors of UNESCO. By then, it was called, I mean, sorry, uh, IHE. The, this was the International Institute for Hydrolog Hydrologic and Environmental Engineering. It's a long name, <laughs> yeah, it but we cut it short to so IHE. <laughs> because it's, by then, there was, it was difficult to form a structure for it to go, to stand as a, a tertiary institution that is accredited to offer master's program. The Dutch, was, the Dutch government was changing its laws and they wanted it to go under a university. But for the proprietors, it was more convenient to have it as a UNESCO organization than to have it uh, in a Dutch institution. Okay. So there, some kind of arrangement was, was made. Okay. And that's how it became UNESCO IG. But it, it's not a UN not, okay. organization. Okay. It's, it's affiliated to UNESCO yeah. and it benefits from that affiliation. Okay. Yeah. So then let's talk now about the Sustainable Energy for All mm -hmm. initiative, uh, institution. Yeah, organization. Organization. Yeah. Okay, organization. 
what is the objective of this organization? What are you doing? What are they doing? What are you doing there? Yes, as the name implies, sustainable energy for yeah. all. Um, the goal is to have universal access to energy for all by 2030. It's a very mm -hmm. big uh, ambition and with three main objectives. So one of the objectives is um, universal access to energy um, by 2030. Uh, the second objective is to double the rate of uh, improvement in energy efficiency, mm -hmm. also by 2030, and also to double the, the amount of renewable energy in the global energy mix by 2030. So these are all very uh, technical uh, definitions, yes. but yes. Um, to, to put it simply, so first of all, it's access issues, but we also know that access cannot go uh, alone. It has to be done with efficiency yeah, of uh, the type of way we use energy, but also uh, more emphasis on renewable energy because it's more sustainable, as the name of the organization itself uh, implies. And also because energy should be viewed differently now. You know about the Paris Agreement and, yeah. and, and how this is tied closely to the way we produce and use energy to address environmental issues but also the development dimension, because this is also one thing we tried to change the narrative on. In, in the past, energy used to be seen as an economic issue only, but it is actually not. Uh, you name me any country in the world where there has been progress in the development of humanity without energy, there is none. Yeah. Actually, we have several countries where progress to human development has slowed down because uh, there is very little or no access to energy at all. So I think now we try to emphasize more on, on that narrative that energy is not just an economic issue, it's an environmental issue, but also it's an issue of social and human uh, importance and, and that dimension should be stressed. So, and, and you didn't make a long journey from in between countries, but also you started with limnology, now it's energy. It's also a long way and you already mentioned the nexus approach, which is food, energy and uh, water. Yeah. How did this come? Yeah, you know, sometimes you look at your life and you have to live a little bit long to appreciate it. Yeah, And I'm really one person who appreciates my life in a way, because if anybody told me um, just uh, even five years ago that I'll be in this position, I would say, no, you're dreaming. <laughs> really. But, uh, you know, one step at a time and things just evolve. And when you open yourself to to the, the opportunities the world throws at you and you don't close yourself by thinking you are limited with only what you have learned or what you think you can do, then you can really do even more. I, you know, honestly, I don't feel comfortable calling myself an energy expert <laughs> because I don't think I am, but I... I, I think am, a lot of people do. <laughs> yeah, but uh, you know, I, I am comfortable working in the energy environment as much as I am comfortable working in water, okay. where I have all the training. So if you ask me how it happened, I really don't know, but I could tell you the path I took, yeah? Okay. So what happened... Um, when I left the, the university, the Technical University in 2008, I, I mean 2003, uh, 2012 it was, mm -hmm. I joined IASA, uh, this is the International Institute for Applied Systems Analysis. Yes, in I joined Luxembourg. In Luxembourg, exactly. Very beautiful uh, yeah. uh, castle over south there. South of Vienna. South of <laughs> Vienna. And I, I was with the water program, but then the water program had just started. But when I went in there, I, there was a flagship program which was looking at uh, 
the water features of the world and the drivers and the challenges. And also at that time, the discussion had started for the SDGs because the MDGs were coming to a close in 2015. And of course, there are so many challenges where the MDGs were not fully implemented or realized. And one of those is the way we approach development as uh, a sectoral issue instead of looking at it as a cross-cutting issue. Mm -hmm. And we also noticed that the the MDGs were good, but some key elements were missing, like energy. Okay. And and everybody wonders, how how could those who proposed the MDGs forget that energy is so central? (laughs) But this is because of the narrative we used to have. So we talked about sustainable development, but we really didn't believe in it. Yeah. But then we began to realize that if you really you start looking at issues from a cross-sectoral perspective, then maybe sustainable development is, is, is possible. And so my task at, in the water program was to link with other development teams. So to link with water with health, mm-hmm. water with energy, water with uh, human development, and water with several other things. And I got interested in the Nexus discussion because... Yeah. Yasa itself is, a, is an institute for systems analysis. So, you know, you know the world is, is, can be divided into several systems or sectors for management reasons, so especially in, in governance. But then um, research itself can also be done across disciplines. And I think you've, we've had this discussion several times. Uh, yes. The multidisciplinary nature yep. and the integrated nature of research for greater benefits. So my task was to look at those interactions and coordinate that. So this is how I got involved in the energy discussion. And then, of course, um, SE for All needed somebody to advocate this for them at the global level. And where else can they go for this? They went to YASA because YASA has been providing core research and core data for, for them to argue the three objectives, which I mentioned earlier on, uh, through the, what was known as the Global Energy Assessment, a very big study, mm-hmm. uh, which YASA led. And so SE for All was very grateful for this. So they kept going to YASA for to seek at, uh, advice and also expertise to help them advocate for the centrality of energy in the global development agenda on one hand, but also to present a narrative of energy, of energy as a cross-cutting issue. And they needed someone in the office, so they, they stole me, I would <laughs> say, from, from Yasa. <laughs> oh, he knows what he's doing. <laughs> exactly. So this is how I ended up working for ESC4. Okay. The main goal of of uh, sustainable energy for all, as you already said, is to to ensure that the countries align their energy policies and their energy pro- uh, energy plans and programs with the the, the SDG seven targets mm-hmm. and goals. I think you already gave a little overview about the SDG seven. We haven't mentioned SDG. Uh, you mentioned mm-hmm. it. My question is, it's 193 countries, 193 member states. How do you align 193 countries? Yeah, actually, it's it's not as difficult as the tax uh, implies. Okay. Because um, we have 103 countries, but then um, each country is at a different level of progress. And some countries need the support we have, others don't actually need it, even though we feel that every country would need it. Yes, yes, I thought so. Because the SDGs are not only for poor countries. So this is also the mistake with, M- with the MDGs. Yeah? The SDGs are for 
every country. So for example, when we emphasize access issues in developing countries, like my country, Sierra Leone, mm -hmm. uh, where access is very low, we don't emphasize too much on energy efficiency because in the first place, there is first no energy. Step, step after <laughs> There's another. not enough yeah. energy. So, so, so we emphasize more on access. And when yes. we emphasize access, we say you can do it in a renewable way or you can consider renewable options. But other countries like developed countries like Austria, mm -hmm. Denmark, Sweden, Switzerland, maybe for them it's not an access issue, it's an issue of efficiency. efficiency. Uh -huh. yeah. So each country has their needs. And um, usually we, we, do, we respond to those countries which ask us for help. Yeah? So we have a simple way of doing it. We ask them to develop a rapid assessment and gap analysis to identify, to understand their energy environment and to identify the needs and the opportunities and the challenges they have. And then we move one step further from that. We, we ask them to what we call develop uh, action agendas. So to, to, to give a narrative of their energy, to do an assessment of what the energy situation is and identify all the energy options they want to follow and then look at the, the, the international environment, especially with the Paris Agreement and the, I don't know you know about the, the INDCs or the NDCs in short, mm -hmm. the, the intended nationally determined uh, contributions. Yeah. So um, once they, they do this, then we, ask, we work with them also to develop uh, what we call... Uh, investment prospectuses. So with these investment prospectuses, we see the areas where investors will be interested to, to come in. And then we do matchmaking. Mm -hmm. So we know where the challenges are. We know what opportunities are there. We know uh, who is doing from the international community development uh, assistance in, the, in energy. We know also who wants to invest uh, in energy. And then we do the matchmaking and, mm -hmm. and, and fit those countries with uh, those opportunities mm -hmm. that, that are there, both in terms of the resources that they, they have and also the, the opportunities that are available uh, that they cannot easily uh, get their hands onto. So simply put, that's how it's done. But of course, uh, there are quite a lot of other things we do. We organize big events um, right Pub now. Public that, events. Exactly, mm -hmm. exactly. Really very big events. And we also contribute to international well-known events like uh, the discussions around the SDGs, the discussion around uh, the Paris Agreement and, and so on. We have um, every two years, we have what we call the Sustainable Energy for All Forum. Actually, one is uh, scheduled for... Uh, the 3rd to the 5th in April oh, okay. uh, in, in New York uh, next month. Yeah, mm -hmm. And uh, I'm also organizing some side events there and uh, several other uh, partners are coming in to organize some side events. So we, we, we drum also the, you know, we, we, we drum, we create, um, you know, the voices. Mm -hmm. um, we drum out the voices so they are heard yeah. even, yeah. even louder, especially for the marginalized uh, without access. And we try to make this uh, matchmaking and, and link people together. As you mentioned, the forum will be in New York. I have to ask this question. The new U.S. government and U.S. president, is this their, you know, the issues, they have a very strange opinion on climate change and they want to, to leave renewable energies behind and they're moving in a completely different direction than, than you with your, with your organization. Is this influencing your work on how? Well, so far, it hasn't directly influenced our work, but we are concerned. Uh, actually, any, everybody in the development community 
and uh, in the in the environment community or climate community is concerned about what's happening there, because it took the world several years. I think how many cops? Cop twenty twenty two cops yeah. in the conference of parties yeah. to yeah. reach the Paris Agreement. Yeah, and now. and this was the the agreement that was able to bring China, the U.S. And developing countries, which were also very reluctant, like India, Brazil, yeah. South Africa, you know, the BRICS, the, the into, into, into the into the into the um, into the agreement. Mm -hmm. Of course, the Paris Agreement itself is not like um, the very best anybody would have aimed for, but it's the best with the circumstances we have. And then for the U.S. to give the signs that they might pull out of it, yeah. it's it's quite worrisome. Uh, but for the time being, it hasn't really affected the way we do our work. Uh, you see, uh, when the next uh, SE for All Forum is, is going to be <laughs> held in New York, and uh, well, there are other reasons why it's in New York. It's not um, directly connected to the new administration. But we, we are also hopeful that um, the campaign rhetorics of Donald Trump will change uh, with uh, when things have to be done, the real things have to be done. Of course, the appointments are also sensitive because he's appointing people who are, not, who are skeptics of yes. uh, climate change. But we think uh, once they settle down and they get to do their work, they might see the rationale. And probably it will be more costly for, us, for, US, for the US to pull out of the Paris Agreement than for them to stay in. So they will think of it uh, closely and probably they take the right decision. Hopefully. Yeah. <laughs> for me, it sounds your, your, your job at, at SE for All like a lot of administration and management and linking parties together and so. How does your daily work actually look like? And do you miss doing research like at Yasser? Because it's it's... Away you, from you, the applied research to doing management, you're really reading my mind because <laughs> you know I, I you know my career is, has been modeled around working in the field and working in the in the lab, yes. you know, and doing you know experiments and doing analysis of water samples or microbiology samples and so on, counting um, um, microbes and and those type of things, and then suddenly I find myself in this. Uh, <laughs> In this office, you know, sitting with a big desk and yes. you know, having to make telephone calls all the time and, and negotiate deals. Uh, it's, it's, it's a lot different, I should tell you. It's, it's really different. But I, I should also say it evolved. So when I left um, the university in 2012 and joined YASA, I started already moving from the lab because at YASA uh, there's research. But there is, it's not lab-based research. Yeah, okay. And most of the time, it's also not field-based research. Yeah. But it's still applied research. Yes. Yeah? And it's, it's research meant for policy. So I graduated. You know, you know the, the thing about jumping from the ocean to the freshwater, it's not, <laughs> yes. this time it was not that uh, dramatic. <laughs> it, was, it was a bit gradual. So I moved, I moved slightly from the field to desktop research. And of course, going to conferences and, and having discussions with policymakers and, you know, um, assisting with the modeling work to make sure that uh, the models are reflecting what the thinking of the policy makers are. And through that reiterative process. Yeah. And then from IASA, uh, you know, I, I really consider, um, you know, the university working for, as applied research, uh, informing policy sometimes. But mostly the, the, the love for science and finding and publishing work. Yeah? 
sometimes our work was applied directly, yeah, because this is really uh, an applied aspect water and and, yeah, and so sure. on because yeah, when you talk about drinking water the health of people this is yeah. something you can apply yes. but at the answer i saw myself now working at uh, informing policy more closely and then uh, at sc for all i am now really working with that policy yeah so <laughs> so i would say it's gradual so i am not in a shocking environment i i'm not in an environment where i think um I, I shouldn't be there or I, I feel a bit disturbed. Of course, I miss working in the lab and working uh, in the field. But maybe this is something I could go back to later on in later years. When I, when I get a lot of wisdom and maybe I go back yes. to the university as a professor. <laughs> and I could supervise some young people and, and, and still get that fun. But I miss it, really. Yes. But it's not all done because... Um, even with my position, I still have time to supervise a master's thesis and also review some PhD thesis. I'm actually an external examiner for some universities in, in sub-Saharan Africa, in Malawi, in Sierra Leone, uh, sometimes also some work come from Kenya. So, and also here at the TU, uh, they, they, they have uh, some master's program where I supervise some students. So it's not totally gone. I'm okay. still... Uh, so I'm still doing that part. So it's, it's just balancing it uh, okay. nicely. Yeah. And uh, one question in, in general. What are or what were the biggest obstacles and the biggest milestones in your personal work and research by now? Yeah. What, what do you think of your... Personal, yeah. yeah. Well, hmm. you know, uh, maybe we, we, we start with the, with the, with the, with the, with the challenges. Living away from home yeah, and making Austria home was uh, quite a tough transition. Of course, you know, I'm not talking about the things people usually ask, where you shocked culturally, I tell them no. The world Cold, has become... Culturally, yeah. yeah. But culturally, maybe not even, because the world has become so globalized now that you see similar behavior in Vienna as you would see in Freetown. Okay. For example, you see very young girls wearing miniskirts or even hot pants <laughs> in the streets in Freetown, as you will see here in summer. So that didn't shock me. Or you see uh, young people smoking as they walk. Of course, not as much in, in Freetown, but, mm -hmm. but it's there. But still. Mm -hmm. yeah, so the dress code, the, the way people behave is, is more, or less, uh, more or less the same these days. Yeah? Um, of course, 20, 30 years ago, maybe there could have been huge shocks. So for me, cultural shock was not there. But I was surprised you. My greatest shock was food. Really? <laughs> yes. Really? Yes, you didn't really. like the Austrian food? In the beginning. Okay. <laughs> what, what, what did they feed tough. you first? <laughs> no, well, I, I mean, it, it was not about what they fed me. Because I could eat potatoes, right? Okay, I could yeah. eat bread. Yeah, yeah. sure. But the, the shock was um, I found the food less chilly and, and, ah, and, okay. yeah, and flat. Yeah. Yeah. And for a long time, even when I could eat the food, I wanted chili in it. Yeah. Because chili is part of our main uh, main staple. Yeah? Okay. I could have rice and cook rice because rice is my staple. But the very fact that it couldn't taste yeah. the way I'm used to, Just I struggled for a long time. Could you believe when I came to Austria, I used to ask my friends to send me to post, to send by post, pepper. Spices, Spices, pepper. exactly. You know, so I could at least uh, add it in the food yes. as I eat. So okay. that, was, that was something big for me. Okay. And uh, also when I left home, and, and this will surprise you also, I didn't know how to cook. 
Yeah, because in my culture, cooking the is... The women are cooking. Exactly, the women are cooking. Not that uh, I cannot cook, yeah. but my sisters will be upset with me yeah. if I if decide you... to go to the kitchen to cook. Yeah, okay. They would rather do that, and I would rather do other things, like yeah. maybe split the... Because we use firewood to cook, maybe go to the to the nearby bush and bring them wood okay. or buy the wood or split it for them so that they can do it. You see, so yes. it's similar with other household uh, chores, yeah? But then here I have to learn how to cook. And that was tough. And that's so you could imagine spices. Exactly, without spices. <laughs> so you could imagine how my, the yes. first food I, oh, no. I cooked, how did it taste? <laughs> I will not even invite you to, to, for a meal. <laughs> it would be terrible, right? <laughs> so that was quite tough. So uh, th- that was an issue that was quite tough for me. But also the general issue of living here um, with very few friends and no family member at all was also quite tough. My supervisor was, uh, I think I really consider him an elder brother now. Uh, he really stepped in a number of occasions. Uh, we really like family. And then with time, I got some friends. And I have several Australian friends who have been to Sierra Leone also. I've met other people from other countries. And I now appreciate the international environment in which I live. And and this is a treasure for me now. Actually, I think if I go back to Sierra Leone now, I will miss this even more, yeah. even if I will have my family with me there. So that was that was an issue. Uh, with the with the opportunities, I think you've, we have talked about yes. this quite a lot. Uh, I have evolved um, quite a lot. Uh, but the greatest milestones, if I could answer your question directly, is uh, first of all to get a, a master's degree from from Austria, and also um, a few years later, uh, maybe I think it was only four years down the line, of no five years down the line to get a, a PhD uh, degree also. Um, and then to have several publications, uh, I usually joke about it. I said, if I should invite the Guinness uh, Book of Record, maybe they should put me in there as the student with, from ORD who had, uh, had the highest publications from his uh, PhD thesis. Sounds I very have, nice. Like, seven. <laughs> I don't know how many people can publish that much, <laughs> but probably there's someone who has done also similar work. Yeah, maybe, yeah, maybe. So we, but again, it's all, I had the opportunity to stay and work with my professor mm-hmm. and only focus on those. Others will want to do it also, but I guess it's different for them. Uh, so, but that's a milestone. And then, of course, another milestone is to get a position as um, a non, from a non-member um, country of IASA to work at IASA. Yes. Yeah, this yes. is for me also a big milestone, and I'm really very grateful for that. Whatever how it happened, I still sometimes can't understand it. And also to be uh, key in... Uh, uh, actually, I was leading the discussion on Nexus issues at a global level for most of 2014, uh, a year I called the most Nexus year, because mm-hmm. I attended, represented uh, YASA and, and SC4L at several uh, global events, and I was actually leading the discussion on that, and I've done some publications uh, on, on that as well. So for me, informing really key you know, people like the special representative of the Secretary General on Sustainable Energy for All, to, to, to inform or to advise him on decisions regarding the centrality of energy and the cross-cutting nature of energy for international development. I think that was a big milestone. How is Austria standing in regards to sustainable energy for all? Is it on your list? <laughs> 
Uh, well, actually, Austria has not asked us for help. Okay. <laughs> so it means probably they're either doing very well, <laughs> very, or, they, very well. Or, or they don't care about us at all. But the latter cannot be true, yeah, because Austria is, 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 is I would say, um, uh, the organization itself was, was hatched here at the, what is known as the Vienna Energy Forum. Um, I think it was in 2009, the first Vienna Energy Forum. And Austria played a key role, not only in hosting that event, but also through the Ministry of Foreign Affairs and, and now also the Ministry of Environment, uh, contributing uh, importantly in, in the discussion. And also when, we, when, when the organization was looking for a host country, Austria said, look, I cannot uh, have a baby and then I give it to another person to take care of. Yeah? So the, the Austria is hosting, yeah, mm -hmm. is hosting. And I think even the laws have to be rewritten in a way that SEFOL can be registered as a, an international non-for-profit organization. So it's, it's, it's really, it has to go through parliament. So I mean, what more help uh, can you expect from a country? So we, we've got all the support uh, we need from Austria, I think, and they continue to play a key role and to a key support. Of course, I look forward to the time when they will say, we want you to advise us on our energy policy, our energy. What? But I, I, I think if, if the need is there, it will come. Yeah. Because we have really a very good uh, relationship at, at the highest level that one could imagine. Yeah. Well, we already talked about this quite a lot, but you said you're working on a lot of cross-cutting issues. The sun is now coming here. Yeah. <laughs> And then let's say the, the big picture. What makes it so special for you to fo focus more on the big and the global picture than mm -hmm. on smaller initiatives? Where do you see the benefits from the yeah. big? Home? Yeah, th this is a very important question because um, most of the challenges the world faces are not solved at the global level. Uh, you can take big decisions at the global level, like the Paris Agreement yeah, or the SDGs. It's important to, to do that so they can influence decisions at the national, regional, or local level. But the solutions themselves are often local solutions. The solutions themselves are solutions that come from the local level. Yeah? And the challenges, this is where also the challenges are. We, we work as an international organization, but we try as much as possible to identify the problems where they are and to draw attention to that. For example, I don't know if you know that four uh, million people die every year because they use firewood to cook no, or, or traditional forms of biomass. This is quite significant. Yeah? Four million is far more people who die from respiratory illnesses, from indoor air pollution than okay. are dying from AIDS or malaria combined. This is quite yeah. significant. And most yeah, of these are women. And children. Okay. Yep. So when you when you go and you tell development experts that we need energy to improve lives, it's not enough, or to bring electricity. Mm -hmm. But if you tell them like, look, if you provide electricity for a village in Sierra Leone, a woman will not give birth with a candle at night, or will not give birth in darkness. Then immediately they, they sit up, you know, yes. and they start looking at you. Or if you tell them that, um, look, this amount of children are dying from respiratory illnesses because their moms are carrying them on their back as they cook inside, especially in the rainy season, because they can't cook outside yeah, sure. with firewood. Then they, 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 you see their eyes are opening up. Yeah? Yes. And, and, and this is what we do. At the international level, we try to create a narrative 
actually we changed the, the energy narrative. Energy used to be seen as a very bad guy in the room. But yes. these days we are trying to change that narrative to make it look as a human issue, as a development issue, as an environment issue, as an issue that is central to all development issues. So if you, of course, this is not to say that water is not central <laughs> or, or health is not central, but I leave it to the health experts and the water experts to argue also yes. in the same way. Yes. Yeah. So th that's what we do at the international level. But at the, at the local level, we draw attention to where the problem is locally. So funds and expertise and technology can flow and, and address those, those issues at the local level. That's a very interesting topic. But I'm coming to my last question. Yeah. What do you think the future holds for us in regard to energy? Where do you think is it going? I will tell you my dream. Yes, sure. I have a dream. And my dream is the future is good. You know, we have come a long way as, as, as human beings. Yeah? And sometimes we are in a hurry. And because we want everything to be done in our lifetime, we want it done now. But life is not like that. Yeah? What we enjoy today, whether it's about you know, the, the, the technology we are using now, or whether it's about the telephone and the improvements, and you know, we were talking about the, the, the evolution from the library yes. onto everything on the phone, it took time to reach that level. Yeah? And we have to be patient a little bit. I think the world is moving in the right direction with respect to energy issues. I'm very optimistic after uh, the Paris Agreement and also the Sustainable Development Goals and the understanding that energy is central to development, but also energy has to be produced and used in a sustainable way. Of course, somebody will say, well, but the challenge is huge. Well, it's, it is. Nobody is underestimating that. But uh, step by step, we will get there. And of course, this is not to say that we have to wait too long, because if really we want to reach the two degrees, which was agreed in at Paris, or even the, the stronger one, the 1.5 uh, degree rise, mm -hmm. then actions should start actually now because we don't have much time. Sometimes I'm disappointed when I see uh, emerging economies or, or countries in transition taking energy decisions or energy policy that is taking us backward. Yeah? I feel really sad. Like, for example, if I see a third world country investing in a new coal-fired power plant, yep. And I said, look, this investment is going to take 40 years at least. Why invest in coal for the next 40 years? Why can't you think of other alternative forms of energy, yeah, which are already there? And, and uh, we, we also see really uh, this, this new thinking when we bring this type of arguments to policymakers that they are listening and they are taking decisions that cumulatively will lead us to where we want to be whether it's on renewable energy, whether it's on energy efficiency, whether it's on access, I think uh, there's a lot of hope. But this is also not to say that the challenges are not there. So I have a dream, and my dream is uh, the world will get better. We will understand that climate change is real. Yeah? And we even do. the skeptics, <laughs> even the skeptics will understand this, uh, and we will take decisions that will stop us from uh, um, having um, the, the worst impact of climate change. Because it's already there. But we will take decisions that will stop us from having the worst impact and also decisions that could help us mitigate the problems that are there now. So I'm, I'm very hopeful. Do you think we will make it until 2030 or isn't it? 
Yeah, they, they is it important they, to the state? Yeah, the debt is important, but I, I you know, I, I, I really also, to be honest with you, I doubt the scientific basis for 2030. It's a nice date. It's beautiful. It's 15 years from 2015 when the MDGs came to a close. And, you know, the MDGs also lasted for 15 yes. years. So probably there is more theoretical and goodness around the date than science. But Yasa led a study, the Global Energy Assessment, and they showed how it can be possible to reach universal access, uh, achieve the objective of efficiency, energy efficiency, and also achieve doubling renewable energy globally by 2030. So there is data, there is evidence, and there is a way they've proposed to do it. Of course, everything is about money and cost and technology and, 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 and capacity. And, and they encourage also, they showed also how those technological changes can occur. Of course, nobody really knows fully what technology comes next, but you can more or less predict for the next 15 years. And there are signs that um, this, this is possible. And there is optimism about those signs. That's very good. Yeah. That's, I think we'll take this optimism as the end of our first issue of the Alumni Audio Lab. Paulilia, I thank you very much for being here with me today and for this talk. It was very interesting. Thank you. It's a pleasure for me too, Doris. I, yes. I enjoyed every bit of it and I am hopeful uh, whatever information is here is useful for the public. Yes. Thank you. Yes, it is. Thank you too. Thanks. Alumni Audio Lab.